This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Picking up where we left off in our last episode, we now visit with the incomparable Dorothy Burge, activist, storyteller, educator, art maker, quilter extraordinaire, and a pillar of the abolitionist movement. A few days before giving her keynote address at the Stitch by Stitch conference, Ms. Burge sat down with Bill at the DePaul Art Museum in Chicago. Their afternoon included a journey through the current exhibition, Remaking the Exceptional, Tea, Torture, and Reparations, Chicago to Guantanamo, which features several pieces by Ms. Burge. You can hear an audio tour of the exhibition narrated by Dorothy Burge at our website, underthetreepod.com. And now, here's their conversation. So we were just talking about reparations in the other room. And maybe you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the reparations campaign. Everyone who talks about reparations in Chicago says two things. One, it was an historic moment, that it was something that was unprecedented, and Chicago led the way in some ways. And the other thing they say is that Dorothy Burge was at the center of so much of it. So talk a little bit about how you got involved in the reparations campaign. I got involved in the reparations campaign because I had just started working at the Urban Studies program. And I am one of those people who, if I see something happening, I will get off the bus in a minute. And so my family always, now my daughter now has a tracker on my phone to see where I am. <laughs> see where you are and if you've escaped somewhere. Exactly, yeah. like where is she now? Okay, so I got off the, got off the bus, there was a protest downtown, and I met this incredible activist, Standish Willis, attorney Standish Willis, and it was the fight to free Mumia and Erin Patterson. And so my family got involved in that. My daughter was like uh, under one years old, and so from- So how long ago was that? Probably 1991, and there we were, uh, protesting, finding out about what was happening in, in terms of police incarceration, the death penalty in Illinois, getting the death row 10 to be released. Um, it was an incredible, incredible time, also very intergenerational, and that's how I got started in this movement. But you met Stan at a demonstration. Met Stan at the demonstration in Daly Center. He was so powerful, and uh, my family, we just joined. My daughter and uh, my husband, we would go to the different uh, meetings and planning, and uh, my daughter would sit under the table. She thought she was actually a member of uh, the committee, and she would be writing with crayons and she thought she was taking notes. And so it's been very interesting, but she became an activist. And I will tell you this story, because when Erin Patterson got released, mm -hmm. it came on uh, the radio, WVON, and she was on her way to school and she told her teachers at Betty Shabazz School that she had to make an emergency phone call. Mm -hmm. She was in seventh grade. And um, of course, they let her go to the office and she called attorney Stan Willis. And, she's, and Stan said, 
they said, the call is from Maya. He said, I thought, oh my God, this must be a terrible emergency if Maya is calling me. So he left his meeting and he goes to the phone and she says, is it true, Stan? Is it true? Are they really letting Aaron Patterson out of prison? <laughs> That's fantastic. And he's like, yes, it's true. So Aaron gets out a couple of days later and he goes immediately when he gets out to the Oprah show. And they taped the four people who had been released that day. And uh, then he came to an event at the University of Chicago. So I heard he was gonna be at the University of Chicago and I go and I'm kind of up front, maybe in like the fifth or sixth row. And I look back and I see Maya and her father. I was like, okay. And uh, Aaron, as soon as he's done, he just put the microphone down and he walked off. He didn't wait for questions or anything. He's like, I'm done. And <laughs> off, he, off he went and so, I look back like, okay, now we can go home. My daughter had gotten up and taken a dash to the door. I was like, oh my God, she's gonna corner Aaron Patterson. Mm -hmm. She did. Mm -hmm. So um, he's out in the hall talking to people. And of course, they, they're surrounding him, you know, trying to get uh, questions answered. And she pushes her way through and she says, uh, Aaron. And he looks at her, he, she said, you need to come to my school. Mm. And, and he was like, okay, you know, sure, I'll do that, wait. And so Stan says to him, no, you need to listen to her. She got more petitions signed for you than anybody. Wow. And Stan Willis uh, talked to Aaron Patterson. They set up a date at uh, Betty Shabazz where Aaron Patterson and Fred Hampton Jr. Right. went to Betty Shabazz right. to meet with the young people there and to have this interactive conversation with them, right. which was incredible. Right. However, I did get calls the next day from students at Betty Shabazz wanting to know, so Mama Dorothy, what are the chances we're gonna be arrested when we protest tomorrow? <laughs> I was like, let me just say that we will have attorneys there and you won't be arrested. They were like, oh, okay, yes. You know, I always have felt that Stan Willis is an unsung hero in this movement. Absolutely true. But he's not the only one. If you look, there were, as we negotiated for reparations, uh, I was the only African-American woman uh, in the negotiations and there was another man whose name that I'm blanking who was from Amnesty International, okay. African-American mm. black man. When the newspaper articles came out about the fight for reparations, we are not mentioned no, anywhere. And so uh, because people were really upset about this, including me, and it wasn't just that I wanted to be mentioned, I wanted it to be known that African-Americans were part of this process. Yes. And so Flint not Taylor. Even, not just a part of it, but in many ways a motor force of it. Yeah, and so Flint went in and started rewriting articles about who was there and what really happened. Mm -hmm. How did you get on that negotiating team? Was that a, picked by the community, by the movement? I don't even remember. I do know that uh, a bunch of us 
said that we wanted to be involved. We went to different aldermen. That also was a very interesting experience to see how we were treated very differently uh, when it was a mixed group versus when it was just an African-American group. And the disrespect that I received uh, going to talk to Alderman. Yeah, I remember a group of formerly incarcerated folks going to Congress people, and there'd be a meeting, and they would refer to them as convicts or ex-convicts. And finally, one of them stood up and said, listen, I'd like to, I'd appreciate if you would use different language, that, that I'm not a convict and I'm not an ex-convict. I'm a human being. You know? Absolutely, and I, I really think that that is something that we have to really be conscious of too, is the language that we use. And so I was told by many people that they uh, are okay with being called returning citizens. And so that's the terminology that I use. Ronaldo Hudson, who's a friend of both of ours, Ronaldo always insists, just I'm a human being. Don't call me innocent or guilty. I am a person. I'm a full person. I deserve to be treated as a human being. I really think that Ronaldo is doing an incredible job since he's been released. But let's go back again. I, there are two strains that I'd like to pick up on. One is your education, how you got to be the artist that you are. Um, and I know it goes back a long ways to UIC and to your youth and so on. But talk a little bit about how you became the artist you are and then too about how you became the teacher that you are. Everybody in my family did art. And so I actually will show you some of the art that's been done by people in my family. So when, when we were uh, bored, my mother would hand us a paper bag and a pencil and say, go, go draw something. And so that's how we all became involved in art. Mm -hmm. And so as, as a young person, I wanted to be a fashion designer and uh, said that to uh, different counselors, seventh, eighth grade, and they were like, that's not a realistic expectation for you to become a fashion designer. Because I was a black girl growing up in public housing. And so um, actually we tested to different schools uh, in seventh grade, and I was one of four people who tested into Lindblom. And uh, I was advised by some people uh, in my school, Betsy Ross, that I should go. And then I was advised by other people that I should not go because I would not be treated well. What did your mother think? My mother said, you make the decision. And so I decided I was going to Lindblom, and then Martin Luther King was killed in 1968, right before I was going to go into high school. And uh, the dividing line in this very segregated city was Ashland at the time. Mm -hmm. And so black people did not live past Ashland. Mm -hmm. And so we had to cross the dividing line. And I did not know this until later that the Nazi headquarters was actually in that community. And uh, when I was uh, a freshman in high school, several things happened that I will never forget. One was uh, one of my classmates was chased, uh, went into a phone booth, called his mother, and then fainted. And so people were like, he was beaten, and they found him in the, in the phone booth. And everybody was incredibly upset. And then the people from the Nation of Islam came and walked us from the school 
to our bus stop for probably two weeks until we felt safe. And I will not, never forget being in the last class, which didn't get out until 4.30, and having one of the teachers put us all in his van and taking us home so we could be safe. All the way from, I lived on 63rd in Indiana, and two of my classmates lived in Altgale Gardens. So 130-something, and he's driving us home so we can be safe. Your mother gave you the right to make this decision. Did you make the decision because you felt that there was a brighter future for you if you went to Lindblom? And did you feel that it took courage to make that decision? Or did you just, you were a kid and you just... I really felt like, hey, I'm, I'm a kid. I want to go to the best high school that I can go to. You all are telling me Lindblom is one of the best places in, in the city to go to. So I'm going there. I also thought about Dunbar because I love Dunbar High School. And to be honest with you, let me just keep it real. I love Dunbar because they had a great football team. But I ended up going to Lindblom. And uh, also, very interesting experience at Lindblom where you had to take drafting. So we had to take four years of math, four years of science, and all of these other things. And uh, we had to take drafting. and. I remember when we were applying for, for college, I said to my counselor that I was applying to UIC because I wanted to be in architecture. And she told me that was an unrealistic expectation that I could not compete with the white boys who were gonna be in my class. And uh, I applied anyway. This is a series of advices you get through the years that you ignore. Exactly. I got into liberal arts. I was in liberal arts for a year, then I got accepted into the architecture program and discovered that I really hated architecture mm. and uh, left it and went into the industrial design uh, program, which was art design, where you were making different products. Mm -hmm. And my goal was to create a series of toys for African-American kids because it's not something that I had when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. So that was my goal. I later found out, years later, from uh, a group of young African-American men that uh, had gone through the program. They were like, you're Dorothy Burge? I was like, yeah. They were like, we researched you. And I was like, wow. why did you research me? Right. And, and uh, because we wanted to know they said how many black people had gotten degrees in industrial design from UIC. And they said, you are the first black and the first woman. I was the only black person for three years in my classes. And uh, there was one white woman in my class, but only one class in those three years. But you both had the courage or the or the determination to, to be who you wanted to be. I just figured this is what I want to do and nobody's going to stop me from doing what I want to do. And that's how I was raised. Your mother, I mean, again, back to the King riots, was she terrified for you? The nation shows up to escort you. Was your mother fearful? My mother actually was in the King protest. She marched with King and um, yeah, so and then you began an art practice. I used to like to do crafts. Mm -hmm. So I decided after I graduated, 
I got a degree in urban planning and policy. And uh, I worked as an intern for the Northeastern Illinois Planning Commission for two years. And I came out and worked at the Voorhees Center for Neighborhood and Community Improvement. And then I went to the United Way. And art was also something that I did kind of as a hobby on the side. Mm -hmm. And so I remember going to the African Festival of the Arts and being at the festival and seeing this incredible artwork and I couldn't afford it. So instead of me just kind of uh, being sad, I decided I'm going to study it and make it myself. I started then creating art in the same uh, method that I was seeing done at the African art. Uh, you know, fair. And so I was using African fabrics. I was using African-American people. Uh, I was using different uh, themes that uh, I was inspired by, by being at the African festival. And so I had all of this art on my wall. And I also had art that I was giving away as presents. Was that near the DuSalvo Museum? Yes. It's always been an incredible event. I love going to it. Uh, I just love being there every year. I feel the same way. You get steeped in the, in the art and in the traditions, and you feel like you're in a community. Even Juneteenth this year, outside of DuSable, uh, that was put together by Chance the Rapper, incredible, absolutely incredible. I got there early, and the music was incredible. There was gospel, there was soul, R&B, uh, it was just really incredible. Then around 10, I would say around 6 o'clock, is when a mass crowd of young people came in. It's like, well, it's time for me to go. <laughs> so Different energy. And let me just say how respectful these young people were. Mm. I had at least four young people come up to me as I was watching the performances, asking me, do you need water? And what turned you to quilting? It was when Trayvon Martin was killed. So Trayvon Martin was killed, and LeBron James did a hoodies up day. And so we had a hoodies up day at the church that I was attending, and my great nephew, we put in a hoodie, and I said, somebody go to the corner store and get Skittles and iced tea. So we gave him Skittles and iced tea to hold. Of course, he didn't hold it because he was in a carrier and he kept tossing it. But we have one good picture of him holding the Skittles and iced tea. That's when I decided, oh, maybe I could use this. Mm -hmm. But let me say what happened before I decided to do the banner of him with the Skittles and iced tea. I was doing a protest downtown and they said, wear a hoodie. I didn't own a hoodie. And I had a nephew who was at UIC, and Jawan had left his hoodie at my house. And so I was wearing Jawan's hoodie, and the more I wore the hoodie, the more I could smell Jawan, and I was just crying by the end mm -hmm. of the protest. Mm -hmm. And I really came back and said, this could have been Jawan. Right. This could have been Jawan. And so after that, when I saw my nephew 
in the uh, carrier with the Skittles and iced tea. I made the quilt. I went out and I used it to protest with. And then I met a woman by the name of Dr. Carolyn Maslooming, who is the head of the Women of Color Quilters Network. And I went up to her and I said, so Dr. Maslooming, do you ever take quilts from people who aren't part of the Women of Color Quilters Network? And she said, show me what you have. So because I'm not good at technology, even though I had a photo of it on my phone, it took me forever to find the photo. So she gave me her card and said, why don't you just send me your quilts and then I'll get back to you. So of course I went home and put every quilt I could think of in the box Mm -hmm. and sent it to her. Mm -hmm. And she called me up and she critiqued each quilt. And what she said to me is something that really changed my life. She said, I love your subject matter of what you're quilting about. However, your quilting is not good. You are going to have to go and learn how to quilt. Mm And so that's when I joined Quilting Guilds and began to learn how to quilt. Mm. Now, you've got all these fabulous quilts, this display at the DePaul Museum, um, and the two downstairs when we walk in. Uh, My daughter, of course, loved Erica Badu, still loves Erica Badu, and so um, she wanted a quilt of Erica Badu. So, I made a quilt of Erica Badu, and uh, we went to a concert, and uh, she pushed her way through the crowd. She's a really pushy kid. And um, she got Erica Badu to sign the quilt. Wow. But I haven't finished it yet, and that was in 2010. And then you also have spent years and years, and you are still a teacher. You're still a student. You're still an artist. You're still an activist, but you also have always been a teacher. And I know you, you taught for many years at the Associated Colleges, and I was associated with them for a short time, but a pretty terrific program. What did you teach them? I taught human rights and social justice, and I also taught Chicago neighborhoods. And uh, I think it is incredible because I got to go to different neighborhoods, meet different community people who were being impacted by policies and hearing their stories and being able to bring the students to hear their stories from their perspective, what they thought about policies that were being made that were impacting them. The Associated Colleges is Midwestern liberal arts schools like Beloit and Denison and those kinds of schools, right? So these kids are 19, 20 years old. They're they're from the Midwest, many white, Mm -hmm. and they're having their first experience in, in Chicago. And, and uh, it, it was very interesting and, and sometimes very challenging, you know, that you're teaching them about human rights issues from a perspective that they've never heard about it right. before, and some of them are really angry. Others of them are likely to be lit up and feel like you changed my, you opened my mind in a way I didn't think it would ever be open. And I'm just going to tell you something that happened when George Floyd was killed. When George Floyd was killed, I got a Facebook message from a student from years ago. And she said, Miss Dorothy, I'm in Minnesota and I'm in Minneapolis. And she said, George Floyd was killed here. She said, I don't know what to do. Can you give me some advice? And I said, I think 
what you should do is sit down, figure out what skill you have. I said, everybody is not going to be a protester. Mm -hmm. Figure out what skill you have and how you're going to use that skill to make a difference. She contacted me several weeks later and said, Miss Dorothy, I am a really good cook, and what I've been doing is every day I make 20 box lunches and I take them to the protesters. Everyone can do something. Yes, absolutely. And so I also have, uh, <laughs> I have students who have ended up in interesting places. Mm -hmm. um, so um, one of my students is now head of Mikva Challenge. Mm -hmm. One of my students was head of Cabrini Green Legal Aid. Uh, so they have gone on. Many of them have become attorneys. Uh, some became doctors. You know, it, they, educators, you name it, they're doing it. It's the um, vocation of vocations because you open the door to so many other possibilities. And I just want them to, to hear different people's perspectives, you know, and to use their skills to do change. Besides teaching them that, you live that. Part of how we did our teaching is they had to use public transportation. And some of them were really terrified to be on public transportation. And uh, interesting things happened to these students. For example, we were going to the DuSable Museum one day, and four of my students get out of an ambulance. And I say, why are you all in an ambulance? We were standing at the red line, Miss Dorothy, and the ambulance drove by and said, what are you all doing here? And they said, we're going to the DuSable Museum. On the bus? Yes. No, that won't be safe. Get in the ambulance and we'll drive you. Damn. Those are the kinds of teaching experiences that we had to talk about. So how is it then that you had students of color also standing there and they didn't ask them to get in? Or there were some times that we could not actually, we could not fix the conflict. And I'll give you an example. You're living in High Park and you have two men, two women living together, two white women, one white man, one black man. They're walking down the street, the two white women, the one black man, and the University of Chicago police pull over the black man. The two white women keep walking. They frisk him down, they ask him all kinds of questions, and he's by himself. And he said, I called my friend, I am not living there again. Mm. I said, I understand. Mm. Two weeks later, the two white women come to see me, and they say, so-and-so isn't speaking to us. Mm. I was like, and do you know why? Well, he won't talk to us, so we don't know why. Mm. Can you make him talk to us? I said, no, I cannot make him talk to us, to you. I said, you need to figure out how you start this conversation. I'm not going to get in the middle of this conversation. I said, but I will say this to you. Did you think it was appropriate for you to continue walking when he had been stopped by the police, when he was with you, 
and you knew he had done nothing wrong. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to tell me the answer, just think about it. There's so much to learn from just going to the neighborhoods, looking to the city, riding on the bus, and these are great examples. I have a, you know, I think it makes me think of Studs Terkel's book, the name of his book, Division Street America. What a great kind of idea, what a metaphor. And then I have a friend who's a filmmaker in San Francisco, and he made a film called The N Judah. The N Judah is a bus line, it's a trolley line. And he got on The N Judah, interviewed everybody on The N Judah for many, many months. And he told the whole story of San Francisco through riding a bus. I will still get on the bus, and I will ride to the end of the line from one end to another just to see how neighborhoods are changing. Mm -hmm. It's just something that I find fascinating. I want to go back to reparations for one minute, if we could. I know that just a little background, maybe you'll give us the whole background about John Burge and what came out and how did you win that negotiation? John Burge is a police commander who tortured, we, Blacks Against Police Torture, say 140 African-American men and women from the time he was on the police force from 1972 to 1991. Just a little background, he came out of Vietnam where he was, uh, I believe he was military intelligence. Yes. And used the skills that we believed he used on people in Vietnam and tortured people here in Chicago. Uh, electric shock, suffocation, uh, tying them to radiators, uh, just beating uh, beating them, putting bullets into guns and rotating the, the gun and then firing the pistol, making them think that he was going to blow their brains out. And he had learned those techniques in Vietnam, they, they say, and uh, he was forcing confessions. One of the people who I am here in residency with is Vincent Wade Robinson, who is a police torture survivor under John Burge. I've met many of the survivors after they've returned home. It's been an incredible, incredible experience to see how restorative they are, given what has happened to them in their lives. It's still going on in so many ways, and what blows your mind is it goes right back to slavery, and it continues through the black codes, through so many things, and here we are, and so many people, when these folks showed up in court, people didn't believe them. The, the prosecutors would say this is bullshit, and the judges wouldn't believe them, and that's part of what the pain was. People still don't believe them. Yeah. Still, people still say, why are you protesting to get these people out of prison? Um, they wouldn't have been in prison if they hadn't done something. Mm -hmm. Completely untrue. I would begin class, I'd say, do you know that I was teaching at UIC and I would say, you know that one mile from here, there are 14,000 Irish women in prison and they'd say, no, you're bullshitting. And I'd say, okay, that's not quite right. There are 14,000 black men, what'd they do? Yeah, exactly. Or the fact that, you know, when people started coming out of prison, they started talking about all of these illnesses that they got in prison because of the contamination of the land and nobody's doing anything about that. Right. So you're killing people. The same with COVID. There's another series of patches that were done by people uh, when I was at the High Park Art Center to honor the people who had died of COVID mm -hmm. while incarcerated, an issue that nobody else 
is talking about. We're, we're not talking about this. You know, people are dying of COVID. We're not doing anything to make their lives safer. Do you deserve to die because you shoplifted? You know, it, it's unbelievable to me that we still have this system in place. Stan Willis believed them. Stan Willis listened to them. Other people began to believe them. Pat Hill. You know, I don't think she gets the credit that she deserves either. You know, here's a woman who ran the African-American Police League for years, was fired five times, one time for having an earring in her ear, uh, would be at protests, protesting the police, you know, trying to do the right thing. Meeting people from the African-American Police League, the Afri Afro-American Police Patrolman's League, you know, Howard Saffold, also somebody very powerful, you know, to hear the, the activism that they've done while they were still on the police force, to me, is really incredible. There was a mass movement. There were lawyers working on it. There were journalists. And somehow a confluence of things came together. And the city of Chicago admitted that they had wronged these guys. And what was, you were part of the negotiating team. What did you get in that, um, in that agreement? One of the things that we got was a public apology. That's huge. It was really key that the city had to admit what they had done. Now the reparations ordinance itself was written by Joey Mogul, who was an attorney at the People's Law Office. Mm -hmm. So it, we were fighting for them to acknowledge what they had done. We were fighting for them to build a center so that people could get the kinds of mental health counseling and other housing counseling that they deserved. We were fighting for uh, it to be taught in eighth and 10th grades, that we didn't want this history to be erased. We wanted people to continue to know what happened in the city of Chicago, even though the torture was still continuing. Mm -hmm. As you know, we know because of the black site in, in Holman Square. And you know, it's like, this was not the end of this. And so uh, we also fought for a memorial, which the city is refusing to give us. They did uh, recently give us land uh, so that we are raising money so that we can build the memorial, which uh, they did a call for artists and architects to come out and design the center. And it was voted on. And so we have the center that was voted on and so that's what we're hoping that now that we have the land, the center can be built. And so... Um, also a mental health kind of component, right? Uh, the mental health component is what happens at the Chicago Torture Justice right. Center. So they are, they are doing incredible work. Uh, several of the torture survivors are working there and they are incredible. They're reaching out to other survivors. They're reaching out to the community. They're telling the story to the people. They're going out to schools, educating the kids. So they are really, really doing the incredible work that needs to be done. Also, the survivors were supposed to get free college, city college tuition, not just for themselves, but all the way down to their grandchildren. And the cash payment of uh, $100,000, which I will be honest and tell you, we all knew that it was not enough money. 
And uh, originally they said they wouldn't come over 25,000. And so uh, that's something else that we had to fight for. It's not adequate, and, and yet I do think that people, and, and as you pointed out much earlier, the whole community was impacted. It wasn't this individual and that individual. It was families and beyond families. It was kids watching from afar. I mean, being a black person in this city, when the police were at their highest uh, in terms of seeking uh, out African-American people for crimes, uh, I think of Andrew Wilson. Yeah. When uh, they were looking for the Wilson brothers, they said, we are looking for African-American men between the ages of 30 and 45, um, between the weight of 150 and 190 pounds, uh, medium brown skin. And I, wait, that's every brother I have. That's every one of the people in my family. It's like, so. I actually called my brothers who were living in the southern suburbs and said, don't come visit me. Stay at home. Don't come here. It's not going to be safe. That's the generational experience for so many people in this country, yes. which is built on white supremacy, and that means exactly what you're describing. It's been very interesting after Trayvon was killed. Everybody was like, well, what's the big deal with the hoodie, blah, 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 blah. And my whole thing is, you can wear a hoodie. This kid can't. He becomes looking suspicious because he's wearing a hoodie. That's all. That's the only thing that made him suspicious. Maybe you would just say a word about the conference stitch by stitch, which you're going to keynote. Well, I am going to talk about how quilting has been used historically. And I'm going to talk about Underground Railroad quilts. I'm going to talk about how we passed the message. I'm going to talk about how our quilting tradition has been appropriated. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to talk about how we are now using quilts in different ways to send different messages, to fight for social justice. Uh, and that's really kind of telling them the history of me and my family using the quilts. You know, you mentioned the AIDS quilt earlier, and that's something that struck me at the time as so powerful because nobody knew, at, when they started the AIDS quilt, nobody knew even what AIDS was. It was a mysterious gay disease and they couldn't find a medical solution, they couldn't protest at a police station, had to do something and they turned to quilting. I thought that was so powerful. If you have ever seen the AIDS quilt, some of them were actually uh, a couple of years ago at Navy Pier. That's right, I saw that. It was really incredible the way that the quilts honor the people who pass from this disease and honors them in a way because they were so dehumanized because of all of the stereotypes that were being put out at the time. And I worked at United Way at the time and I just remember how many incredible people were working in social services that we lost. Yeah, that was an extraordinary moment. Um, and I just think it's interesting that people turn to art and turn to quilts. You know, you're an artist, and, and how do you think of the role of the artist? 
I can't speak for other artists, but to me, my role is to use the art form that I have to document the history from a perspective of an African-American woman and mother, and to have that history passed down to the next generation. How do you not burn out? How do you keep going? How do you have such a forward-looking attitude? First of all, I love music. So if you love music and you love to dance, that really does help you quite a bit. Uh, I have a huge family. They are wonderful. Um, great quilters that I'm involved with who are very, very inspirational and very sharing of techniques and time and energy. And so there's a lot of really wonderful people. The bird survivors, oh my God, you want to talk about some incredible human beings. Uh, Ronaldo, wrongfully convicted, uh, and Ronaldo was, uh, was not wrongfully convicted, but if you want to talk about someone who has changed his life and uh, really turned to restorative justice, he's one of the people. You know, Eric Blackman, when he talked about the 16 years that he spent in prison for a crime he didn't commit, and everything he had to do to survive, and what he survived, you know, what he lost. I think what you're telling me, and I think it's something that is true to my experience, is if you can find strength in community, you're better off than if you just try to do it alone. And the young people in my family, anybody under hmm, 16, I would say, from age, two to 16, all have incredible energy, and they love to dance, and so we always do the Soul Train line. Perfect. Last question. Um, this is called the Seminar on Freedom. Say a word about what freedom means to you now. I'm just going to keep it real with you. After so many years of fighting, it's like every time you fight for something, it can be uh, twisted in a way that it doesn't work the way you thought it was going to work. Every time someone is released, they're incarcerated in another way. Every time we get the freedom to be in one place, something happens in that place that makes it unsafe and you don't have freedom anymore. Many times I thought, would freedom be better if I left this country? And I'm still thinking about that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I would like to see freedom and feel free and feel valued and uh, all of that. And, you know, I just don't know what it feels like. I will say this. One of the things that has been inspirational for me is being able to leave the country and the fact that when I leave the country, no one ever thinks that I'm from the United States. Mm -hmm. And that has been a really interesting, liberating experience for me. Maybe freedom is fighting for freedom. Maybe that's why you, when, when you win something and it gets perverted or it gets co-opted, then you go on to the next fight. I don't see you stopping. So maybe freedom for you is just keeping taking the next step. I want the world to be better for the next generation. And I also want us to be in conversation with the next generation, 
so that we understand how they see the world and what they want. And I want us to respect each other. I want us to be in conversation with each other and figure out how do we work together on a common cause. You're an inspiration for all that. And I'll tell you, I, I see what your goal is, but it's also true that here in Chicago, among so many of us, you're not only seen and recognized, but you're honored and you're respected. And I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. And remember, you can take an audio tour of the DePaul Art Museum and the exhibition, Remaking the Exceptional, Tea, Torture, and Reparations, Chicago to Guantanamo, with Ms. Dorothy Burge on our website, undertheTreePod.com. <laughs>